Hey friends, thanks for joining us today. Uh, you may tell if you're a regular by our attire that this is not typical. Um, Michael and I uh, had a funeral today, and then I have an opportunity to uh, return a grandson to his parents. And so we are pre-taping, pre-recording this session, but we are grateful that you would join us as we continue here in the book of Exodus. We are in chapter 6, uh, kind of a sandwich of sorts. I will tell you more about what we mean by that, but as we begin here, we are moving into verse 10. Um, a few verses we'll talk over, then we will um, continue on with the rest of the chapter. So let me begin reading here, verse 10, chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his hand. But Moses spoke to the Lord, The Israelites have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, a poor speaker that I am? Thus the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and gave them orders regarding the Israelites and the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, charging them to free the Israelites from the land of Egypt. So uh, this is a theme that is prominent in this chapter. We've, we've now started with it in verse 10. We're going to end with it at the end of the chapter. Moses, um, again, a kind of reluctance, maybe a kind of practicality. Moses not quite yet leaning fully into his role as God's mouthpiece. God says, go talk to the Israelites, go talk to Pharaoh. He says, the Israelites haven't listened to me. Why would the Pharaoh listen to me. We don't know if there is something to this business about Moses speaking. Maybe he actually has an impairment or a condition that has been speculated, or perhaps he just is one of those people who says, I can't do that. I'm, I'm no good at that. It makes me nervous. We don't know exactly what the, the situation is, but he clearly has a reluctance to speak up. And I, I think, you know, in that, Michael, there's a, a sort of common experience for people. I think when we look sometimes at the, the opportunities we have for the gospel's sake, they seem intimidating, and we most often find ourselves maybe wishing somebody else would take over. Yeah, I, the word I was thinking, Clint, was that word reluctant. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. I think that what we see in the selection of Moses is a really striking example of how God chooses characters in the story of the scriptures who are unlikely to be chosen by any other metric than God's providence. Because if you look at Moses, we talked about in the beginning how he had this impulsiveness, and then now we see in some ways the exact opposite. When God makes a statement to Moses, Moses seems consistently reluctant to listen. And the moment that there's adversity here, Clint, the moment that the people of Israel don't listen, uh, he starts coming up with excuses for God. He starts talking about how uh, is Pharaoh going to listen to me if, the, if my own people don't listen to me, poor speaker as I am. And of course, as the reader, we know that the text has explicitly stated that's the very reason why God gave Moses Aaron so that he would have a speaker. I mean, it's as if Moses at every turn is reluctant to believe that God is going to be faithful to accomplish the task that God set Moses out to do. And, you know, Clint, there's there's an aspect of this theme that runs through Exodus that makes it clear the person in the driver's seat, the person who the people of Israel need to trust, Clint, is not Moses. Moses is not the guy. It is God. God is going to be the one to liberate the people. Because if Moses was left to that task, Clint, I mean, it's going to be a series of frustrations. I'm certainly not criticizing Moses 
Michael, but I, I will say that I think often in those type of moments, in those sort of calling moments, you know, in the scripture, and I assume in our own lives as well, God rarely calls us to things that are easy, things that we could easily do, things we were already going to do. You won't find that story in the scripture. And so when God calls Moses, there is a kind of self-reference here. Moses thinks of his own ability. We tend to do that. We we would tend to think whether or not we are capable of the task. But for Moses, that's really missing the point, and, and it is for us as well, because the point is that God is going to equip Moses to do the thing he's called him to do, that God is going to equip us, that God is going to give us the, the skills or the ability or whatever it is, that it's not really about us. It's about the way God endeavors or plans to use us for his own purpose. And I think Moses doesn't have that quite figured out. You know, we're still very early in the text. Moses has not really been tested. Moses is going to grow. I think we're going to see an interesting character study in Moses through this book in that he he is going to lean, I think, further and further into that role and that reliance. But here, he still has, to use your word, Michael, which is the right one, a reluctance. He he's dragging his feet. He he thinks I'm not good enough. You know, whether or not that's a lack of trust in himself or God in the text, it's a little bit one and the same. Because mm-hmm. if one puts their trust in God, then they trust God to do what God has said. God has said he'll do what he's going to do through Moses. So, yeah, I, I think a very human, very interesting struggle here, an interesting insight into part of Moses' struggle that I think most of us can also relate to. Yeah, absolutely. And Clint, I think there's a sense in which we need to recognize that as this is telling the story of Moses' leadership, which it's certainly doing, that is only a microscopic part of the larger story that that is being told here. And let's be clear about that. That's the story of God's covenant made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the story that we looked at through Genesis and that entire study. And now that promise is being lived out, Clint, in a very specific and timely way in the in those people's, that family's experience in Egypt, they're slaves and they're captive. And now God is continuing this ark that has been present since the very beginning. And so I think that begins to make sense for us, Clint, of why we begin to see this turmoil, the people struggling to accept, you know, how is God going to lead us out? And and Moses struggling, you know, how am I going to do it when I can't speak? It's striking now that the writer of Exodus is going to lead us back into that family story. And though it may seem to us like this is a strange transition about to happen, I think what we're about to see in this genealogy is a is a reminder to us, the reader, that God is being faithful to the people who have a history. And it's that very history that God is leading forward in this moment. And there's a sense of promise in going back to the bedrock of the beginning. And I think we see something of that here. Yeah. If you were with us through Genesis, you know that genealogies matter, and they tend to matter for two reasons. And we're not going to read this one because it would be a long list of names that most of us wouldn't recognize. But in this instance, a genealogy functions as it often does, A, 
it sort of establishes the lineage of the hero, or in this case, Moses and Aaron. And interestingly enough, particularly Aaron as a Levite, as a priest, this genealogy is heavily, heavily vested in Aaron's lineage and in Aaron's role as a Levite. The second thing, and I think more importantly, as you hinted at, Michael, is that the genealogy roots the story in the ongoing work of God, that it's not simply about Moses and Aaron. It is about the people. It is about the history. This echoes the genealogies of the previous book, the book of Genesis, taking us again all the way back to the beginning of the story where God said, I'm going to make of you a people. You will be my people. And anytime we encounter a genealogy, because it is backwards looking, it, I think, points us back to those original covenant moments. And it's hard for us to get that as we read a list of Hebrew names that are hard to pronounce and maybe unknown to us. But that's really the point of the story. Let me tell you about this person and this person, that, that this story is bigger than Moses and Aaron, and it is also connected to the biggest story, which is the story of God's adoption of a people and his promise to them. And I don't want to take this too far, Clint, but there is also a sense in which genealogies teach us that though they didn't make large paragraphs of the scriptures, each life matters. And I think we sometimes miss that, that while the scripture leaves out far more of God's story that it includes, if you include all of the people who have been faithful, all of the moments in time in which God's providence has been brought to bear and, and God's kingdom has come, like all, all of this stuff is a true reflection of God's desire uh, to bring the world back into perfect union. But that are not all in the scripture. What we have in the scriptures is what's necessary for, t- for us to understand uh, God's will and for us to see the revelation of Christ. And so the genealogy in some ways is a shorthand reminder that you may, uh, our lives won't make the scriptures. That's the reality. But the truth is that those who are faithful to hear and to trust and those who live their life as best as they can under the hand of God and in God's people, that these lives matter. And, you know, once again, I don't want to take that too far, so I won't spend too much time on it. But there, there is, I think, an affirmation here, Clint, that uh, we may not be Moses and Aaron. Most people weren't. But the truth is that it is our connection to a longer family story. And in a world in which the family story and our rootedness and uh, the the people and the traditions from which we came are less and less important. There is some ancient wisdom in this that being connected and rooted to a story much farther back than our own short lifespans, it really matters. And the people of faith have always believed it matters. And I don't know how many of our listeners would care about this, so I'll make it very brief. But in the book of Genesis, we introduce the idea that there were various parts of the family that contributed to the overall story. And because this genealogy seems to focus on sort of verifying Aaron's credentials as a Levite and celebrating, lifting up Aaron, it is thought that perhaps this particular play, this particular text came from the priestly tradition, the, the Levite tradition, and that they were sort of on team Aaron. Not that they 
are in any way opposed to Moses's leadership, but that they wanted to celebrate one of their own and lift up Aaron's contributions and his lineage as well. So um, if you care about the sort of nitty-gritty of biblical scholarship, that's been one of the ways that this text has, has been seen. Yeah, and it, I, I'm not going to add much to this, just other than to say this is one of the unique stories of the Old Testament, maybe in some ways the Scripture as a whole, to have a partnership like this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not often that we have leadership represented as being so uh, connected, and so Moses and Aaron, I think, is interesting because Aaron's Levitical uh, importance shouldn't be understated. In fact, Jesus Christ uh, in Hebrews gets connected through some interesting, um, you know, spiritual understandings to the Levitical tradition, to the priesthood of Israel. So uh, there's a lot here. We're not going to spend a, a whole lot more time fleshing it out. We just want you to know that this genealogy is here. Who it emphasizes matters. The, the point is it emphasizes the historical connection of God's people, that Moses and Aaron are fully in the midst of God's plan. And uh, that in some ways, it might feel like the junk drawer of Exodus. You're throwing stuff in because it needs to be in there. I think if you were the original recipients of this book, if you were handing this down as a family heirloom, this is who we are. This is what God has done to protect us and to uh, bring us out of Egyptian slavery. This is an important part of that story. As modern readers, our temptation is going to be uh, to speed read through it, put it on three times, play speed, and just try to get it done with. Uh, but it does have value, and we move on then. Right. And uh, join us if you can tomorrow. We still have a little bit today, but join us tomorrow for a fascinating look at this partnership. Because I think you're right, Michael. There there are not very many instances of this kind of tag team arrangement in the Scripture. And uh, tomorrow, God is going to say some very interesting things about the work of Moses and Aaron. So let me just uh, we'll jump back in here at verse 26. It was this same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, company by company. It was they who spoke to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, the same Moses and Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I am speaking to you. But Moses said in the Lord's presence, since I am a poor speaker, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Interestingly enough, at least in the if we start with verse 10, as we did, we end right where we began. God saying, go speak to the Pharaoh, and Moses saying, why would he listen? I, is this going to work? Who am I that he would that he would obey me? Who would I am I that he would trust me? Uh, why would it's a wonderful question. We've heard it twice in these few verses. And if you if you sort of skip over the genealogy, which you could in the flow of the narrative, you've heard them within just a few verses of each other. And I think, you know, again, it's a very interesting moment that we're in for Moses, Michael, as he expresses these kind of doubts and struggles. Yeah. And just a surface reading of the text, the answer is he won't and shouldn't. Right. Moses, I mean, he's not going to. And that's the reality, because at the end of the day, the people of Israel uh, have no hope if their hope is in Moses, if their hope is in his uh, oratory, in his rhetoric, if the point is that Moses is going to stand up and he's going to spin 
uh, some speech that's going to move the world, then the people might as well just settle in for the next several generations. But of course, we, the reader, know that this is always been about God. And I think it's worth noting here, Clint, that this very famous revelation story that happens at the burning bush makes it clear that God initiates the salvation plan, right? This is not Moses's harebrained idea, that Moses simply sees the burning bush. Really, quite frankly, he's only active insofar as he gives into his curiosity to go see what's going on. Really, the active driving force of the people of Israel's salvation is God. And the text is making it clear, even through Moses's explicit question, and Clint, the scriptures don't often tell us what a character is thinking. That's not part of the narrative style throughout much of the scriptures. So here, language and dialogue like this gives us a little bit of a window into what's happening in Moses's mind. Why should Pharaoh listen to me is in many ways an invitation to see he does not understand what's happening. He does not understand God's uh, surefire determination to pull this off and the fact that Moses is just simply the vessel. He, he still on some level thinks that he's essential to this task. And as long as he thinks that, Clint, he's not going to know what's going on. Well, he certainly has expressed doubt. He, he tried to get out of it. He seemed to not wanted to do it. Now he seems to think that he can't do it or maybe even insinuates that he shouldn't do it. It's it's a very fascinating relationship that develops between God and Moses. Um, in Genesis and throughout other parts of the Old Testament, we've seen God's anger provoked for less than this. And yet Moses and God have these interchange. You know, I, I think it, it says it verbatim. He said, in the Lord's presence— why would the Pharaoh listen to me? He expresses an open question, a sort of doubt-filled question mm-hmm. right in front of God. And and that is that is not wise in the Old Testament. <laughs> right. And yet Moses and God seem to have this relationship that can tolerate that sort of movement, that sort of looseness, and it, it makes it a very interesting study. We're going to continue to see that kind of interchange between them throughout the rest of this book. And I, and I, there aren't many things like it. They're they're just Moses and God have a nearly unique relationship in the scripture, which is fascinating. I think. I think we traveled this ground enough for today. I'm just going to put as a maybe a, a future note that we'll come back to as we encounter this theme again. I think there is some interesting implications of comparing a character like Moses to the characters we've had previous in Genesis, because there's there are some really interesting differences in how that tension or that 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 intermediary space between Moses and God. The the ability to doubt, the ability to push back is in, we've seen negotiation, but it would be interesting to see how this also compares to some of the characters we've seen before. That said, uh, friends, thank you for taking time to join us today. We know that this is maybe not anyone's favorite part of Exodus, but yeah, it's an important part of the story, and it leads us forward, and we certainly hope you will join us tomorrow as we, as we really start ramping it up with these encounters with Pharaoh. Thanks, everybody. 